0: Hello and welcome to Ponderings from the Perch, the Little Bird Marketing Company podcast. I'm so excited to have someone with me today who can actually plug a few holes that actually I'm going to poke. So (laughs) that's what we're going to do today. We're going to poke some holes and then we're going to hope that this guest can actually do us all a favor and put it all back together. So thank you so much for joining me, Dan Foreman.
1: It's a pleasure to chat. It's been some time in the arranging.
0: (laughs) Okay, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. I'm not crying, you're crying. But it did take a while for us to get together. But I'm so pleased that we're together because... You have an illustrious background that is so well suited for a question that has just been rolling around in my mind. So for those of you who've been living under a rock and don't know who Dan Foreman is, let me just tell you, he has been in this industry for uh, several decades. Uh, He specializes in emerging technologies. And I got to tell you, that's something pretty big that's going on in market research right now. Also, just some of the insight that he has about some developing markets is really what's guiding a lot of different brands through a really different ecosystem, right? Our our ecosystem is kind of um, changing a little bit in market research and will continue to change. But he helps organizations grow from that incubation of this innovative idea into multi-million dollar revenues. And everybody likes that. And I'll tell you what some of the owners like, they like the exits too. So kind of makes Dan a little bit popular. (laughs) I'm sure there's a lot of things you say that make you unpopular first before you get popular. (laughs) That's the role of an advisor, right? But Dan comes from a career at WPP, he has managed senior clients, he's been in advertising and consulting roles, he's done investment and advisory and entrepreneurial mentorship. So you can see there's a long list of ways he's been involved where technology, marketing, social media, research, all these things, boom, they collide. And so other thing I would say is that he's also seen kind of the gambit of early stage business and also like all the way to the exit. So you might have known him as, I don't know, a little thing called the former president of SOMR, if you've ever heard of such a thing, <laughs> but he's, you can catch him online because there is a lot published about him. But Dan, I'm so happy to have you here. And our final connection here is just right now, you serving as the chair of the board at Zappy. And so I had a lovely dinner in Toronto with Steve and got to connect with him. Obviously, Ryan Berry and I are great friends. So it's so lovely to have like, here's the triad. <laughs> I'm like, uh, I might feel complete. So Dan, thank you for taking your time today.
1: Uh you're so kind and so thoughtful with your introduction. It's great when you you hear yourself described by somebody else because you know how it is nobody likes to, to blow their own trumpet. But when somebody else is blowing it for you, it <laughs> really is nice to listen to it.
0: I guess. let me hand you this horn <laughs> I love it but I also feel like just the affability I can easily talk with you Ryan or Steve and it's just it's very practical I think a lot of people who have who look up to you for all the experience that you've had think that the conversations are going to be very theoretical or very lofty but what I find is that talking with each one of you it's very much a, an assessment, a quick assessment, and then a decision on an action. And it's something I see in common with all three of you. And obviously, that's why you're achieving so much. So tell us just one quick thing before we dive into this crazy idea that, that's been bothering me a little bit. But tell me a little bit about your day-to-day. What are you doing? And that can include Zappy, but also some other things.
1: Well, my day-to-day is, is a tough one to answer. It's more, I think of it as sort of year-to-year, really. So as you've alluded to, I'm involved with a few different businesses. A lot of them are around the data and insight space. I get very excited about the early stage of a business. And there's kind of an interesting irony that it's the early stages that take up more time and in some ways a bit tougher. And it's it's the the ups and downs, the riding the waves, the the punches in the face that you get, and then the big wins that mean so much and making your monthly payroll and, and looking after cash flow and all those things. But what happens with companies like SAPI is that you get big enough to hire somebody like Ryan to to run the US and then eventually become company president and build a massive sales organization. So then my role at SAPI has changed from in those early days, struggling to put together pound points for a, a customer who's unexpectedly said yes to a meeting or to perhaps dive in a little bit on what the display of some results might look like where the the machine hasn't quite worked the way you planned it to because of the first time of testing, to then all the way where somebody at Ryan will say, hey, I've got a meeting with this particular customer. Do you know anyone? Say, yeah, sure. You know, I met this guy a couple of years ago. He spoke at a conference. We had a great conversation. So it's it, there's still a lot of practicality about what's done, but it's very different. It's very different from the getting your hands dirty and making sure we hit what we planned for for the month or the year, whatever the objectives are. So then you're much more of a sort of classic coaching advisory position. So if you take that range and apply it to the range of businesses I'm involved with, it means that on a daily basis, it's pretty varied. I mean, earlier today, I was talking to somebody about possible exit of a business that, that I'm involved with. We've had an indicative offer and we're taking that out into a little bit of competition. We're now doing this. This afternoon, I'm talking to somebody outside of the insight space who has got an offer that he wants to take, but it's a family business and he's being brought in to try and persuade his brothers that this is a good idea. So it's pretty varied, but I would say, especially post-COVID, there's been quite an emphasis on M&A activity. It's like a, it feels like a lot of people paused during that time and now we're kind of catching up over a couple of years of pause.
0: Right, right. Well, this is almost like close to the great tea into what I want to talk about. But one thing that you said, I want to unpack just a minute is you like to get involved in early stage. And I have to say, like, one of my non-ideal clients that I know to stay away from is early stage. <laughs> Part of it is they typically don't have the resources to really do what they need to do. But one of the things I find is that they oftentimes don't really know what they need. And I find that very difficult. Like, I've not been able to really make that case. And obviously, that has to do with your skill set and being able to really come in and say, look, I, I know exactly what I can provide to you. So I won't put it on the early stages that maybe it's their fault. Maybe, maybe they just, maybe it's me, not you. <laughs> but what, what, what? it's interesting that you love the excitement in some ways and that thrill, but it's also hard, hard work.
1: It is hard work. But that, that sort of classic, throw all the spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks and reverse that into a product market fit and turn it into a growing strategy. I absolutely love that. And I think I've tracked it one year on the number of companies that I talked to who are at an early stage. And it was really high. It was nearly 300 companies. So like one a day, that's always at least an hour, but it's sometimes much more than that, particularly if you like a company and you, you're thinking about dating. So you, you get to know each other a bit better. So that takes up a, a lot of time. But in doing so, I then find that actually I get really close to the, the challenges of running and, and scaling a business and hearing about it from all sorts of different dimensions, you know, whether that's around strategic financing or sales and marketing, product market fit, you know, talent, sort of finding a co-founder, co-founder leaving, distractions, of all sorts that, that goes on there. I've also found, which might be interesting for you to to ponder on yourself, is that when I'm talking to these companies, they they'll perhaps ask, yeah, you know, well, do you want to get involved? And I'll say, yeah, sure. And they'll go, but you know, how? How do we attract you? How do we convince you? How are you compensated? You say you'd invest. How much do you want to invest? And that can range from people saying, hey, can you invest? in me. And this is within like two minutes of meeting.
0: Actually, (laughs) I
1: don't don't need money, but I do need your expertise and endorsement. So there's a big range there. And it also depends how early stage, because some people are, I've got an idea, some are, I've got an idea and it's not working. So I'm pre-revenue. Others, we've got one big customer, but we haven't been able to get a second or a third. There's a lot of different elements of that early stage. But I've through doing a little bit of retrospective analysis, sort of reversed into, here is the menu, here is how you engage an advisor. And sometimes giving that out to people saying look, it's clearly not going to work between us, but I'm going to introduce you to three or four other people who I think will help. And these are kind of the things you should be thinking about and the way you're cash restricted. So the way you might want to compensate on a long-term basis or yeah, depending on, on who it is that you're bringing in, you know, maybe there's something to be done about, you know, cash flow catching up over time and just accruing things. And then specifically, how to get the best out of them. I found that it suits me a lot. I like to chat. And I think the kind of the big do a lot, like actually do and produce, I've realized that if I do too much of that, then there's the problem with the, the sort of the transfer of ownership. So, you know, a, advisory and consulting is really important and sometimes it's a let me show you how but the second time it'll be great if you do it e- even if you get the recipe a little bit wrong you know, do your best and we can you know put the icing on after but there's sort of a lot of that and i found with a few people I know who have attempted to go down the consulting path that for a lot of people around the research world they like to do things a certain way and then they struggle a bit with somebody Receiving great advice, maybe ignoring it. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Uh, It's something that
1: you're familiar with. Yes. Right. Yeah. (laughs) What I'm
0: hearing, Dan, is like you're like a teaching hospital, but for businesses. (laughs) I'll show you one, then you're going to do one, then you're going to teach one. (laughs) So it is this idea of sometimes people just don't know what they don't know. So you do need to show it. Like this is how you engage with an advisor. Look, take me off the table but these are the things that we're interested in. And to me, that's really kind of strikes at the core of one of my biggest issues is collaboration is that people need to put their cards on the table. To me, that's one of the biggest things in the framework that I teach people about collaboration is that you can't ever collaborate with people when they don't put the cards on the table. And so I think what's interesting about that is there are some advisors who kind of hold that almost withhold for a while. And to me, That's not like total collaboration. And I can see obviously the string of amazing successes you had with companies bringing them into a market, maturing them, and then obviously bringing them to exit. So you are so well suited for what I want to talk about. (laughs) And I'm going to say this in the most, everybody knows that you and I both of all people love the market research industry. We really do. And we want to take care of it. I think you and I both operate in a way of a duty of care. And we surround ourselves with other people that think like that because it is also maybe to be a little bit crass, it's also a don't poop in your backyard kind of situation. Like you're going to have to go pick it up anyway. (laughs) This is also my theory on marriage. (laughs) Like I've been married almost 30 years. So I'm like, you got to take care of it, right? (laughs) It's the soup you're swimming in. So. But one of the things that was interesting as a little bit of an outsider, so my degrees in cultural anthropology, and I started getting asked to speak about digital marketing within the market research industry. So it's not like I didn't understand social sciences and came to it from a, a background that I could understand. But my first experience was, oh, market researchers, they don't know how to market. I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. There's a We all have blinders, there's things, I'm a marketer, and there's things, I don't know market research, right? So that makes total sense. But when I got into it, and this is something that you, me, and like Kristen Luck, Jamin, Brazil, like we laugh about a lot. But the first thing when we talk with the uh client is, so what does the research say? What have what research have you done on your own firm? Oh no, we wouldn't do research. I mean <laughs> I'm like Okay, <laughs> like well, it's not valuable. Like, why wouldn't you do research on yourself? Like, or pay, or better yet, pay someone else because you know a respected colleague who could do it to you, right? Because you kind of can't do it to your own baby, right? It's very difficult. But it was kind of a funny and I laugh, but I'm really crying that there really wasn't an appreciation of value. And really, maybe even if there was an appreciation and a value, there was not a process by which it was expected that market research firms would be doing market research on themselves. So then enter the next thing. Then I started hearing from the outside, well, we want a bigger seat at the table. We want to be able to have a voice. We want to be heard in the C-suite. We want these kinds of things. And I heard that at conferences for a couple of years. And as I really dug into that, it occurred to me that they it's not that they were not valued it's that they weren't speaking the same language as most of the people at that table <laughs> and they weren't speaking in my opinion the language of business and into your side of it the language of investment and cash flow and revenue generation and those types of things so stir that all up with covid a little bit where on top of covid i think what you would agree is that we have continued to have market research i don't know if i want to use the word flooded but it has been very intense about technology and innovation. And then on top of that, what something you just mentioned was then mergers and acquisitions. And so with technology and basically a lot of SaaS applications and then moving into really businesses changing hands and getting retooled as a specific application in order to be sold, I think it is becoming even more prescient that a lot of market researchers do not speak the language of business, and so this is really the sweet spot of where all of your expertise converge. And I would love to hear you explain why you think that is and what we should be doing. and I mean, I open it up to you for where we want to go from there, but you are really, I think, the best person I could ask for this. That's
1: a fascinating topic, a really, really interesting question. One of the companies that, that I'm involved with and I'm the co-founder of and the chair of a company called Beckamo, which is a social media analysis business. And we published a report probably a year or so ago, um, which we called the Amoeba, the Dodo or the Raven. And the whole thesis was the market research community are not very good at marketing themselves. And let's compare ourselves to management consultants who absolutely get a seat at the table. And creative agencies who get a seat at the table, both get huge budgets. So what are they doing in digital marketing that market research isn't? And that's where we came up with the title, the the amoeba, which is how we characterize ourselves. And then when we want to go, we can either soar like a raven or be like the dodo and die. It was fascinating to see this. So this is in digital media only. We didn't look at like sort of conference content, although we did look at repurposed conference content as part of it. We found that the market research industry in general talks about itself and then critically talks to itself. Very few market research businesses talk the language of business to their customers. There are some exceptions. I mean, you've touched upon some already, and that's the role that you play with the companies that you work with. And Zappi is a good example of actually, they are good at talking the language of business. And of course, that's correlated to, to the growth and the success of the company. But typically, the market research industry doesn't effectively communicate what it's all about. This is the industry, let alone the individual companies. The picture's pretty discombobulated. And what we do talk about is, to the outside world, pretty boring, not necessarily credible. It's not the language of business. We're talking about gadgets and technologies and methodology innovation. And they are not the words that you were just using there about having a seat at the table. And also when you look at the volume of digital marketing that we have relative to management consulting or creative agencies, we are tiny. So we have a small voice that mostly talks to ourselves about stuff that's not really relevant to the people that we'd love to talk to. And of course, anyone at the big companies who's surveying the whole world of insight, they're going to start noticing the, the the amazing stuff coming out of creative agencies, the really comprehensive, non-bragging work that comes from a management consultant. And then we're kind of this, this little bit at the side that you have to work really hard to try and make sense of. So I think there, there's a huge industry digital marketing problem. And I think in some ways, the sort of the why is that, which was part of your question. I feel it a reflection of the type of personalities that do well in research. They are not necessarily business people, and I've had similar conversations many times over the years, especially at conferences. That and you hear it frequently as a complaint that. Great researchers get promoted and then they're not necessarily great managers or they're not great managing directors or you're great CEOs of businesses, but they're really good researchers. And I think then that's reflected a little bit in the kind of the, the general growth rate you see. And the companies that are really successful or really disruptive have very consciously said, I'm going to grow a business. And they're, they're thinking as a business owner rather than thinking as a great researcher who's just evolving their skills. And I think there's a there's a really big difference in the, the the founder's mindset if you're thinking I'm going to run a business and I'm going to grow it versus I'm really passionate about doing great research. And as a consequence, I'll have a business. There, of course, there's a massive role for that latter. But I think that is a reflection then of why we don't necessarily see some of those huge growth rates and why collectively as an industry, we do box ourselves into a niche which I do find astonishing, because when I go out and talk to the investment community, and, and of course, we've we've had a bit of a spotlight on our world, particularly from private equity over the last year or so, you know, some really good deals to be done. When somebody else looks at this, and they say, wow, market research, you know, your you know, data is the new oil, you're accessing some of the most powerful data at all. It's the data that people carry around in their heads and their hearts and their guts. This is really, really valuable. And when you start adding that data together, the, the value of data becomes you know, ever more increased and you're advising brands and governments and foundations and people are making huge decisions around vaccines and you know, eradicated polio in Africa and all these things that are coming from data. That's a really, really exciting world. But somehow that's not at all reflected in virtually anything, any of the conferences I go to. We again, we talk about smart developers in psychological frameworks or some clever new way to do some facial analysis, but not you know, the huge, incredible impact story that we had had you know, around predicting an election or advising a, a brand on how best to enter a completely new region. You know, there's so many cool impact stories that we have, but we just don't really talk about them. I'll pause there.
0: Do you think that they don't talk about them or do you think they are actually also removed from the impact? I think maybe it could be both. Some people do get to do their work and then present it and then connect it to the impact. And I do see that, I think, more often. They, they're aware of it. Maybe it's later on that they see the impact happen where it is. But I don't know if that's happening so much or if they're unaware of it, because it seems like because they do the deliverables that are, OK, I did the data. What does it mean? It seems to me that they should speak that language then of business impact. Before we get too far, let's talk about this show's sponsor. As a business professional, mastering social media is no longer a nice-to-have set of skills, but a fundamental need in order to advance your career and exceed goal. A lot of people are interested in learning social selling techniques for revenue generation, network building, and maybe even to advance their thought leadership. But what is actually needed is a practical and repeatable system to digitally transform whole teams. Teams that commit to creating meaningful digital communities and learn how to leverage social media to turn relationships into sales online far outperform their competitors. And companies that commit to investing in their teams to increase their personal social influence reap the benefit of increased brand awareness and positive upticks in company reputation. Social media is natural, it's cost-effective, and it's an easily leveraged tool at anyone's disposal. What is lacking is an effective and proven system that trains sales, marketing, HR, and executives alike to move from social selling to complete digital transformation and into digital dominance. Our 12-week social selling course is a practical, hands-on experience. It's taken over time specifically to address the needed mindset shifts, the changes in habits and behaviors, and all of this while implementing new skills. You will learn how to network effectively and at scale, build rapport with targeted audiences, expand your influence, and become the go-to authority in your area of expertise. So this is not a quick tips and tricks for LinkedIn success flash in the pan. It's a commitment to changing the way you show up online and experience career shifting breakthroughs. This is expert instruction in small cohorts with personalized one-on-one coaching. If you're interested, go learn more at littlebirdmarketing.com slash social hyphen influence.
1: Really interesting. When I first worked in advertising, I I joined a a company as an advertising planner. I was very fortunate. They wanted somebody with really strong research skills And because a lot of the planners were good creatives who'd end up in planning but didn't really have an inside craft that underpinned what they did. I found myself sitting in a meeting together with Millwood Brown at the time, and we were evaluating the ads for this company, Campina. It's a flavored milk business. And I really felt for the guys at Millwood Brown because they, lots of money had been spent on doing this evaluation. Of course, lots of money had been spent in the creative development of the work that my company was involved with. And they went through the presentation. They revealed all the results. And the CEO of Campina, he turned to me and says, you're the planner. What do you think? And I thought, he's asking me my opinion. And my opinion to him, it, it was evident in the way that beaten up Millwood Brown and the results my opinion was more valuable than all the money that just spent on research and asking the opinions of 500 people and 40 years of methodological IP and a (laughs) backward-looking data set. And that was incredible that because I was working in advertising, I was put on a pedestal that was higher than that of the research team. But what also what I'd noticed there was that – In the world of advertising, an account director really knows their customer's business, really knows lots about them. They're going to the customers. We would go to Campina and say, hey, look, Nestle are doing this. Have you seen this new Nesquik innovation in Spain? And uh, we'd be very proactive. We're really interested in knowing their business. And we would want to know, know, we've just spent £4 million on this advertising campaign. What's the ROI been? And in the absence of Yet yeah, some sort of ex factory sales data, or the Nielsen data, which would always take months or years to kind of catch up on, then we would be doing our own simulations and projections and and in-store interviews and really sort of filling in the gap and, and having a proper business conversation. you know, you've invested this, this is the return, you have the financial return, but maybe also you know some more strategic reasons for for doing this. And I just don't see insight professionals ever well. There's, of course, exceptions, but very few ever having those kind of conversations. I don't think most of them are that interested in it. They're always, oh, thanks for letting me know if they hear something, but it's not their instinct to say three months after some deliverables, how did it go with that? It's just not really how how researchers are thinking. I think it's, it's, unfortunately, from a business perspective, there's often very much a deliver this great project. And now the intellectual challenge of this new project is what's really lighting a fire in me, not really the, what impact has this had on my customer? Um, Some people will not necessarily like to hear that, but that's just a reality that that I've observed over the last few decades. And And, not to
0: say that's not a problem. This kind of specialization is like, you're the person who gets all it up getting the thing done. I'm not saying that's really a problem so much as that then when the next person presents and says to me they don't understand what the disconnect is. I'm like, well, let me tell you the truth. This is why there's a disconnect. So I think there are some people who are curious and they are wanting to bridge that divide and they don't know what it is that they're missing. And to me, my gut instinct is, well, you're missing just like the business prowess (laughs) and that vernacular. And you don't have to know it all either as an advisor, you know, with all your experience, you still don't know it all. And it's more about, the effective kind of questioning strategies you have around how people make revenue and what it is they need to do next. And what is the, what is the KPI that is important to who they report to? So it's like solving your boss's, boss's, boss's problem. (laughs) And I guess there's only some people who want to go that far.
1: (laughs) There's also some challenges just in the structure of the industry going way back to early early in the beginning of my career i was working at research international that's now part of kantar but at the time it was the largest custom research business in the world and i was working on a new product forecast for basically a, a different variant of hellman's mayonnaise and we did our standard micro test which had all these volume predictions which was great And then because I was interested in other parts of the company, I had a small secondment into the advertising part of the business. And there we then did some advertising evaluation of the same product. So I was speaking with the Hellman's team and we thought, well, now that we know how effective the advertising should be, let's go back and revisit the forecasts that that we made that were nine months apart, these two projects. So we took all our results from the advertising back to people sitting in the same building but on different floors who've done the volume forecast and no one had ever asked them that question that now that we know this advertise is going to work really well how's that going to impact your projections and no one these products have been around for a long time uh, but not a single customer had asked them and nor had it ever been asked internally and i think if you're sitting on the the brand side on the helmet side of course you've got to make those connections they're not as discrete projects as they might seem. Just because you have different people working on them, you go You know, with, with any product from the beginning of, is this product going to work? You're getting to that point where you're making some forecasts and thinking through your distribution and your retail strategy and your trade marketing. And then you see some creative development work. Yeah, all these things have got to be linked. And that's what a brand manager does. And Unfortunately, I think there's there's not really that clear appreciation for a lot of people in, in research that what a brand manager does, what a marketing director does, what their day-to-day challenges are. When I worked client-side briefly, we spent a lot of money on this huge usage and attitude survey, and I only used two slides from it. You know, It's a 300-slide deck, <laughs> but there are only two that really were helpful, and I had to change those, but there are only two that were helpful to circulate within the business. Because if you're working you know, on a global marketing strategy, for, and this was a, a very exciting category of diapers, but you're working on that. You haven't got the time to look at a 300-page usage and attitude survey. You just want to know generally how American consumers differ different from European ones. And that's quite straightforward. I found that staggering that sitting on the other side, that those days when I had written the 300 slide presentations, that maybe 298 of those slides were not as relevant as I thought, you know, i not really <laughs> taken care over them. And you're right, there is a role for that. There's a role for that specialism. It's important. But then how it's used within a business is often very different from the perception you have when you're producing it.
0: I love that. I love that. And here's number one, y'all call them nappies. That's the difference. So put that on one slide. (laughs) Okay, let's move on to this idea. I really want to hear a little bit of the mergers and acquisitions and, and this idea of like what's happening with technology and ResTech is going in an interesting way. And I was actually on a call the other day, and someone brought up the idea of this really emerging role of basically like research operations, like the person who is the keeper of the storage of the, the curator, if you will, the research and the who manages the repository of all of the research that we've ever had so that's kind of interesting but we'll kind of put a pin in that for another day what i want to hear from you is this let's understand why there is an interest of m a activity going on in market research what is it they're seeing so that people understand what's going on because i tell you there's a lot of mergers and acquisitions going on and i've heard one of two reactions like oh, this is going to ruin our industry. And the other one's like, oh, thank God the Calvary's here. So tell me a little bit about why you think there is some interest right now and what is this going to look like in the next year? And I know with a pending recession or some other economy issues that nobody knows exactly how that will pan out or when, but it's not going to completely divest the interest of people in private equity from looking at market research at this point. So what's going on? It's
1: interesting. It's interesting. It does feel new for a lot of people, but if you look back at the history of M A in market research, it's been around for a while. And private equity, yeah, you know, and big company, you know, big holding companies like WPP that you know, Sir Martin created, are really looking at, at data, as, and he particularly called it data investment management. DIM, which was interesting as, a, okay. as an acronym for, for market research. <laughs> Not a
0: good acronym. Right yeah. It yeah. was more like insights, like brightening, like illumination. Yeah, yeah, Could yeah, you come up yeah. with one like the, that?
1: The illumination
0: was illumination was too long. He had to use DIM.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's always been around. And I think that's in part because market research generally always been profitable. Yeah. Generates cash. And in a portfolio of a private equity firm, you want some companies that generate cash and that you can hold for a few years. It's very predictable. If you look at the growth rate of the industry since rather well, than ever kind of looked back as far as 1948, but it's consistently grown. And there's a predictability there that, of course, some funds, some PE structures, they like that. Um, I think the reason that it feels that there's a lot going on at the moment is that we have seen a sort of extraordinary increase. I mean, It's not extraordinary by financial market terms, but it's extraordinary for an industry of of our size. And I think part of that is that there's some developments around technology that have happened in the world, which have started to be utilized within the world of market research. And the investment firms, as they're looking around at different areas to, to consider, looks at the market research industry as I mean, nothing's a straightforward, a safe bet, but a relatively safe bet because you've got that underlying predictability and that cash generation that comes in. What I've seen on a personal level is that we're also getting now sort of some second-generation investments. So let's look at Zappi as an example. We've got our first investor was Prime Ventures. Now, Prime Ventures was an early investor in Sint, and they got a great return on Sint. And when we first started talking to Prime Ventures... They were interested, having done a a great deal with Syn and got a good return, in doing another market research deal. So the timing was great. There was an attractiveness around the Zappi proposition that that they liked, and that's been borne out from the journey that we've been on. Um, But that's what I consider like a second generation of of investment. I was also, I mean, I was the first non-American employee of Focus Vision way back, and we sold to a private equity firm called Schroeder Ventures. uh, Sorry, Schroeder. Schroeder Ventures investment plan SVIP, which is now a company called Permira, and Permira is—I think it's the third largest PE firm in the world—but they're looking at some big plays around the, the you know, the world of insight too. And there are some big plays, you know, when you you look at, you know, what's happened just kind of in recent times, I mean, N- Nielsen. The Nielsen IQ, GFK, you yeah, there's there's the SINT, there's the Lucid. Yeah, these are all big kind of for the, our industry, big headline grabbing deals. But often the people behind them are the names that were behind them, not necessarily exactly the same name, but the firms and the people and the funds that have also kind of been around this space for 20, 30 years. And that then sort of circles back to there's a predictability and a guarantee around the underlying cash model. Yeah, not high growth. But you do want some things that you know are going to generate that you know, 3, 4x return. And so there's sort of a constant and a reassurance there. I think we all get excited, though, because what has happened as a byproduct of it is you see a couple of good deals go through, and Qualtrics was a great lighthouse for us. I think so many different people then started orbiting the, the insights world as a consequence of that. And there's a lot of venture deals to be done, you know, and every day we can read about them in the, the different news sources that we get. But, yeah, you know, and I've I've been tracking it and, you know, Simon Chadwick does a good job of tracking it and publishing reports. And there's a lot. And I, I also keep a record of the people who are making the big deals. And, you know, that sheet of companies that I'm following has grown dramatically over the last three years. You know, there's, there's new names coming in. And that's because you hear of Balderton Capital, for example, which is I think Europe's best early stage VC firm, they make an investment in Dahlia Research, Latana, and then everyone who wants to be as big as Balderton makes an investment somewhere around this insight space because they're kind of following them. And they and Balderton, of course, they're also investing in fintech, and they do they invest in Revolut. So then lots of others go into fintech. There's some hot and, and emerging spaces, and it makes it quite exciting. one, one of the things that I'm really curious about is when we might start to see some methodological innovation because i mean i started off saying we talk too much about methodology but the concept of restech it's a cool concept for the purposes of selling your company patrick well done but restech itself you hear it all the time it's missing something else you know it's missing the what do we do with the information where's the insight i don't actually just buy restech you know i'm buying data to make a decision or an insight from it you know i need to have some business impact from what I'm getting there. And when I think about genuine innovation around methodology, so what do we do with this data? I haven't really seen anything since, I mean, since the advent of Millward Brown, like 40 years ago. There's different kinds of innovation, like Zappi's an innovation in the in the how. But given all the tech we have available, I think, yeah, you know, if, if somebody started the market research industry today, we wouldn't be doing all these long surveys we wouldn't be doing the focus groups the way we've done them yeah you know, things would be far. things would reflect the world that we live in much more and covid helped i think it accelerated that a little bit but we would yeah we would be doing things really differently so the una study that i talked about earlier if i want to understand usage and attitude I'm going to be doing it on a smartphone, not asking somebody 45 minutes of questions. Yeah, I want you to send a photo of this diaper. You know, I want to see what, I want to understand what it's really like when you squeeze it wrong and it all squirts out at the edges. Yeah, and you don't get that in a 45-minute questionnaire.
0: I was just talking last night, actually with Cameron over at Hatch Tank, and we were joking around about that exactly kind of, that kind of study and how it used to be done in market research, but on the Hatch Tank platform, it's like, it's on mobile, <laughs> you know, of course it is. And I think I could kind of put that whole concept together as market research, maybe we've kind of had this moment, maybe we've had an aha moment, Dan. <laughs> um, market research kind of has its own cadence, but business has a very different metronome and it is beating faster and it requires a different pace. And I'm not saying that there's not a value of slowing down as we all know the value of low thinking and fast thinking. It's not all the time run faster, faster, faster. It's that there has to be times where that pace is honored and understood And that the deep work that can happen in the slow time can be put onto a different track. And that we know from the outset, we're not just importing our pet methodology and we're really just coming at it truly to answer the business question. I think you and I just painted an ideal world for market research, <laughs> so let's make it. <laughs> but it'll take time for that to change, but I think you are right. The COVID did accelerate it, why accelerated a lot of things, bad and good. But I think it maybe could be a, a wake-up time for some people in market research to say, Are we doing this because we always did it this way or are we doing this because this is the best outcome for the consumer and the business and that co-creation between business and consumer. And I got to tell you, this is one of the things I love about the Zappy technology so much is that a lot of people talk about co-creation and using data for co-creation. But this really does it. And I think that's an interesting proof that it can be done in market research. And now the question is, of course, it's not gonna be done the exact same way for the methodology that you have, but for everybody listening to us, maybe the question is, how do we change the pace of market research when it is appropriate to do so? Not for the sake of just going faster, but how can we listen to the beat of that different drummer and start really making some adjustments? So maybe we've solved it, Dan. Maybe I just needed to have you on my podcast a long time ago. (laughs) We could have saved a lot of people some issue, but uh, so coming up in the next year for you, and I don't want to put you too much on the spot with a a recession and whatnot, but you are an, an investor. And I guess just kind of end us out here with just a couple of things you're looking for. Like what markers, if you're going to invest, I have a big audience of people who are in developing early stages of developing technology or they're crushing it with what they're doing or they're really struggling trying to figure out how to break into this industry. So as far as like investment there, what are a couple of things that are on your mind coming into 2023?
1: It's a great question. Some of the, I'm really interested in the non-conscious measurement side of things. Um, So anything which helps us understand what's going on in the brain without me having to sort of reflect and try and articulate, I'm always interested in that. So I feel that the whole world of neuro is at a relatively embryonic infant stage. And I'm always fascinated to see developments and, and any evolution there. So that's one. Okay, uh, but related on, to that, on
0: that on that number one, so I'll come over across the pond, you, me, and Lee Caldwell from Irrational Agency. Let's have a pint. Let's have that conversation. Okay, number two.
1: Sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, number two, I'm really, really fascinated around unstructured and language as part of that. So unstructured is taking many different forms. There's, of course, there's a social, but there's huge increase in the amount of video that's being generated. And I think if we can crack the code of trying to understand how people communicate, because it seems there's no unifying system of how humans communicate, or perhaps any species. But if we can move close to that, I think that's extremely valuable. And that will have impacts way beyond the world of insight. I've always sort of imagined that if someone in the digital marketing world, if someone could actually codify what makes Mr. Beast, the most successful YouTuber, how he's communicating versus PewDiePie, and all of these, and that's just one extremely valuable, but still narrow niche. That would be incredible to be able to do there. So I think sometimes when we develop things in Insight, it has potential impact across other areas. So there's those two. Always interested in different markets So markets where I haven't spent a lot of time. You know, I love to go and, and get experiences. I mean, that's a big part of why I do what I do is to discover new journeys and to get to know different people. To that end, actually, I've just made an investment in both the firm and the first fund of a Honduras-based VC firm called Infinita Technologies. They have a podcast called Stranded Technologies. Really cool. And we've made investments in healthcare, nuclear energy, autonomous drones, and some digital currency. So that's that's pretty cool. So coming up for me next year is a little bit of time in Honduras. I'm looking forward to, to that.
0: Oh, I'm Um, crying my eyes out for you. It's So sad. I am fluent in Spanish. So just keep me in mind there for any kind of uh, travel needs you have. But I will also say make sure that you give us the link to that podcast and we'll we'll push it out here for people who are interested. I don't know if anybody noticed it, but about in the middle of the show, Dan asked me to ponder something and I found that very funny. So we hope that today you have got a lot of fodder really for what you need to ponder where you're going in this industry and maybe where you've been stuck. That's really, that was really the heart and the intent of us poking a little bit at our industry and at ourselves and saying, what is it that we're bringing to the table here that might be working or not working? And as you know, Dan and I really do have a respect for this industry and we want to make it better. So Dan, thank you so much for giving us your expertise and your time. And finally joining me on Ponderings from the (laughs) Perch.
1: It is a pleasure. And let's not leave it so long for the next one.
0: From all of the peeps here at Little Bird Marketing, have a great day and happy marketing.